Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined tonight, as usual, with my father, Jeff Clark. G'day, Dad. How are you going? Fine, thanks, Theo. Looking forward to it. Before we get into the podcast, first of all, I need to apologise for the lateness in getting this episode out. But uh, we were too busy this weekend doing fun things with our families, so we just didn't get around to recording it. Uh, we will make up for it, however, because it's going to be an extra long one, I think, um, and of course it's going to be of its usual stellar quality. In this podcast, we're going to look at the fallacy appeal to authority. It starts Other terms and or related concepts... Appeal to eminence, appeal to the great and the good. And we describe this fallacy as follows. This fallacy in reasoning occurs when an advocate appeals to an authoritative person or agency in support of his or her own viewpoint. The authoritative source may have some prominence in the field under consideration, or the person agency may be prominent in an unrelated field. In the latter case, the gullible advocate is relying on the generalised eminence of the authority in an attempt to sway the opponent rather than the presumed expertise of the authority. Example. Brian Bladderpocket is an academic with an interest in social policy. He is giving a seminar on multiculturalism to a small group of postgraduate students. One of the students... Mark Gonzo says, You claim you're an advocate of multiculturalism, but you're not really. Any immigrant group which doesn't conform to liberal middle-class values is anathema to you. Many values of many different cultures conflict with Western conceptions of human rights. Brian the Advocate replies, I don't accept your point. Just last Wednesday, Sir Ernest Willingly wrote in his, his opinion column in the East Coast Thunderer, that norms of all known cultures are consistent with universal human rights. And I shouldn't have to remind you that Sir Ernest is a Nobel Prize winner. Comment. Brian has cited Sir Ernest Willingly's views on human rights in support of his own position. What he hasn't said is that the Nobel Prize Sir Ernest won was for physics. In such a case, there is no reason for presuming Sir Ernest's views on any social issues have any more weight than anyone else's views. The seeker after truth is in principle unimpressed by the prominence of the person expressing a viewpoint on an issue. Even if Sir Ernest did have qualifications in relevant social research, Mark would be entitled to be sceptical about his opinions. After all, there are many historical examples where the consensus views of experts in a field of inquiry have been completely overturned in the light of later investigation by more competent researchers. Deceitful advocates often appeal to authority in order to bolster their position. The appeal to authority fallacy is a significant problem in contemporary debate on social issues. Journalists and editorial staff in news media often seek the views of eminent persons for no better reason than their availability and visibility. 
Journalists are under pressure of remorseless deadlines. Print and electronic media proprietors are naturally concerned with circulation figures and ratings, respectively. Under such circumstances, it is not surprising that the lazy option is often taken. Contact one of the usual suspects, who can be depended on to comment with effective gravitas on any subject, preferably a figure who is who is popularly seemed as humble and self-effacing, despite having ruthlessly collected honours, distinctions and personal wealth all his or her working life. The sceptical viewer will realise, for example, that when Sir Dean Silly Billy, an obscenely rich former Supreme Court judge and retiring governor of New South, New South Holland, is pontificating on remedies for the plight of the poor during a valedictory television interview, he is more likely to have been part of the problem than part of the solution. Similarly, the sceptic will realise that when the recently and widely acclaimed Father of the Year, Justice Gustav Flatus, OAM, presumes to lecture the rest of us on child-rearing practices, he may not be doing so from a credible standpoint. Despite his recent honour, he may not, in fact, be an exemplary parent. He is in a position to pontificate on parenting because he has managed to achieve a high level of visibility in the community through his non-fathering activities. Perhaps he has actually been a workaholic absent father whose long-suffering wife has had to be both mother and father to their children. There is no way of knowing for sure. But we do know that some past recipients of the Father of the Year Award have put their own careers before the needs of their children. The prominence of a person is evidence that the person is capable of securing prominence, quite possibly through a meticulously planned, single-minded campaign of self-aggrandisement. It is not evidence that he or she speaks with genuine authority on any matter. In our view, all eminent persons should be in jail. Okay, that was Appeal to Authority from the book. Um, And I would just like to add a little uh, disclaimer there. By our view, when Jeff spoke then, he was actually just referring to his own view. So... If they come, if I, I plan on becoming eminent, actually. So, um, first of all, just before we get into some of the examples, uh, appeal to authority, arguably, I think, is one of the hardest fallacies to identify because, first of all, people genuinely do have authority. So, you know, you can talk about so and so's views on something if they're an expert in that area of field, and, and that shouldn't be discounted just because someone, you know, says that. Uh, they're an authority, well, yeah, if that's all they say, then you can probably say, oh, hang on, you're just appealing to their authority. What are the reasons that they give for their view? So if you're going to cite an authority, you shouldn't just say, well, so-and-so, he's a you know, Nobel Prize winning physicist, so he would know about quantum physics. You've got to say more than that. You should give the reasons for it. So in saying that, sometimes that can be difficult. So if you don't know the reasons why they believe it, that's legitimate to say, well, okay, this person is an authority in this particular area, I don't know exactly why they say these things because I'm not qualified to talk about it, but that's what this person says. So at least you're being honest about your argument. Now, the real, the worst kind of appeal to authority, the really obvious ones, are when they're appealing to an authority who's not actually qualified to talk about it. So that's what the examples we gave in the book were. But um, and and there are a couple of other mis, uh, misconceptions people get with this one. 
when someone is citing a person who came up with the idea or who who are referencing someone, that's not an appeal to authority. So had students in essays basically say, you know, when someone's talking about, um, uh, say, uh, um, inferiority complex and talking about Alfred Adler and they're saying they're appealing to Adler's authority. It's like, no, no, he invented the idea of it. Um, so that's not an appeal to authority. That's just referencing someone as well. So there's there's little nuances there with that, which we'll get into a bit further with some of the examples. Yeah, the other thing um, is uh, it, it's commonly the practice when tertiary students are being trained to write essays that a big feature of the training is to for them to find sources and to reference those sources and to develop an argument based on uh, good research and so on. Now, um, so appeal to authority is not then a fallacy unless, for example, a student has a preconceived idea about a topic and goes in search of authorities that support that point of view rather than genuinely reading across the field and making sure that they include um, minority opinions and the like in their essay. So it is a complex field and you shouldn't just simply say that's an appeal to authority when someone actually cites an authority because it may not be a fallacy, as we pointed out. And hopefully the examples that we now give should hopefully tease out the nuances, the nuanced differences between um, a, a genuine appeal to authority um, fallacy versus uh, you know someone actually being an authority figure and talking to them about that. But let's quickly give some examples of why this is. Um, let's start the conversation with really an example which shows how difficult um, it, appealing to authority has become and how sceptical, dare I say, people are becoming of authority in the age of the internet. This first little clip is, of course, from something that I've used a lot in the podcast, uh, Richard Dawkins' Enemies of Reason series, and it's Richard Dawkins talking to the philosopher of science, I think he is, Steve Fuller, and uh, let's have a listen to this clip. drive for alternative medicine, all these kinds of movements away from the orthodoxy in science. I see it a lot as like the Protestant Reformation was vis-a-vis -vis Roman Catholicism. Internet, in a way, is kind of functioning as a kind of information source, very much like the printing press did in the 15th century and 16th century, that is in a sense empowering people to sort of look up stuff for themselves in terms of different kinds of treatments and things like that, and, and in a way not trusting the experts anymore. And well, look, why do I have to trust, you know, the GP? Why do I have to trust the Royal Society? I think you're so close to being right, but yet you're damn wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Um, I would like to take that ball and run with it in a different direction. Yes, we want to question authority. We don't want to say, because this person is the president of the Royal Society, therefore what he says is right. We've got to go back to the evidence and find out what is actually true. The problem is, of course, people may look at the same evidence and then reach a somewhat different conclusion from what the head of the Royal Society reached. And so they will say, well, look, you know, I looked at the evidence too, and I'm not persuaded by this. That's where you start getting a kind of an opening up uh, of science. Okay, so that uh, was a pretty good example of the issues there and a really clear example of when it would be an appeal to authority when Dawkins says, you know, you don't just say, oh, because he's the head of the Royal Society, you believe him, you've got to go back to the evidence. But as then Steve Fuller points out, that people look at the evidence and come up with different interpretations. And so that's a really good argument for better education as well and better science education especially. But I think that's a really good point is that 
you can't just cite someone as being an authority and then say, therefore, that must be correct. What you should be doing is saying, and they believe it because of these reasons, um, as, as much as you're able to do that. But Dawkins also has a really good point. For example, people just you know dismiss someone because they're a, you know they the doctor said this, but oh, but what would he know? Blah blah blah. And people are getting very cynical of it. And well, the guy did go to medical school and learn stuff. You know, five. Seven years, you know, and then go and do special, become a specialist and whatnot. So, yeah, you can question them, but you shouldn't um, just not believe them because that doesn't confirm to what the belief you have in the first place. But the, I think, in a way, doctors and GPs and, and other people and the authorities are recognising that and recognising they need to communicate better and recognising they need to explain themselves better to people. So, that has been the result of that, I think. That's certainly the case in science, where scientists are realising, you know, communication is not snubbed anymore. Science communication is seen as a really valid and useful thing to do to explain the reasons why we believe particular things. I think the other thing to mention here is that we could all do with some epistemological modesty, which I think is a term Theo used in a previous podcast. Um, the experts themselves, for example, um, if they're not absolutely certain of something, they should say so. And when uh, individuals who are not experts are listening to experts, uh, those individuals shouldn't listen to the experts with an arrogant frame of mind, ready to dismiss everything the expert says. But rather, you should be open-minded and be concerned with approaching the truth as closely as possible, rather than necessarily challenging or getting involved in an ego clash with an expert you particularly detest. And I have to say that that's one of my problems, that I, I do actually loathe certain experts. And this often leads me down the garden path because I look for faults and flaws in their presentations. And uh, this is just a personal foible. Philip Adams, for example? Well, Philip Adams is not an expert in anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I just loathe Philip Adams generally. And... Uh, I'd break off this podcast to run him down if I saw him in front of the car. I would not love you, Phil. Um, actually, and when you said that, the, one of the things you said, the arrogance, which I thought was great, because actually I think a lot of it, certainly science experts, I don't know about social science, but hard science experts are tend to be the most um, uh, equivocal in their responses. And certainly when you read a science journal, you know, they never are um, unequivocal in their response. Some of them make the mistake of saying one thing in the journal and then their press release or their interview thing, yeah, we've, we've proven this link. But that's really interesting. And then, so for example, thinking back to the podcast we did on Jenny McCarthy about autism, now the sheer arrogance of someone like her who has no education and no training in science to then go on and talk about public health policy because she's read a couple of books. Now I'm going to appeal to her lack of authority and say she's really not in a position to do that. And even if she has looked at the evidence, she she was the way she talked about it was completely arrogant, like with certitude. Whereas the actual experts they got on, they were actually a bit more um, equivocal in their responses, and they weren't so arrogant. Okay, but I think that it does leave us in a bit of a bind, therefore. And so the main thing is to, if you've got the time, you go back to the evidence firsthand. Otherwise, yeah, as a rule of thumb, you can kind of listen to the authority, um, if it's, especially if it's not something you care about. But if it's something you care about, you should really go back to the evidence as best you can and make sure you know, you're not being tricked or fooled and try and evaluate your own thinking about it as well. So what I'm going to do now is play a clear example of a definite appeal to authority. There's no doubt this is an appeal to authority. Uh, there's no decent um, evidence given. It's just I 
am an expert, therefore you should believe what I say. Uh, this is and this is an example from 9/11 truthers, as they're called. Um, in uh, I did a post about a 9/11 truther um, in a documentary called, sorry, a not a documentary, a work of fiction called 9/11 in Plain Sight, and the guy uh, wrote a response to a criticism. Um, his name's like Dave something or other, Dave von Kleist. And he talks, he's, this is his quote, he says, In our radio program, we've interviewed a two-star general, an Air Force colonel with 30 years identifying aircraft and aircraft pass, an Army uh, major, Air Force major, 33-year-old vet- veteran of DOD missile defense systems, numerous airline pilots, blah, blah, blah. They agree that a 757 could not have caused the damage in the Pentagon and that the planes hit the towers could not have been commercial aircraft. That's their opinion, not mine. What does any of those supposed authorities have to do to actually being able to do that? I mean, none of them have actually ever seen a plane fly into a building before, I wager. So, you know, a clear example of field authority. I'll chuck a link up to that one. But this next one is a clip uh, of, that I found on YouTube of, again, another general talking about the plane, but this time it's crashing into the Pentagon. One of my experiences in the Army was being in charge of the Army's imagery interpretation for scientific and technical intelligence during the Cold War. I measured pieces of Soviet equipment from photographs. It was my job. I look at the hole in the Pentagon, and I look at the size of an airplane, it was supposed to have hit the Pentagon, and I said, the plane does not fit in that hole. So what did hit the Pentagon? What hit it? Where is it? What's going on? Anyway, so this guy who spent his career looking at photos and he looked at another photo and went, hey, that hole is too small. It must have been something else. And his appeal to authority there, obviously, is that, you know, I, I spent my career in the Army looking at photos. But a couple of minor points. First of all, didn't say that he looked at photos of you know, plane crashes. Second point is, in the actual YouTube clip, they show a diagram of what the plane should have done, and they actually show the wings cutting through the building like it's some kind of indestructible knife. It's like, no, no, it would have collapsed, and then all the building would have collapsed in on the hole, which is why the hole is a lot smaller, you idiot. Anyway, it's just embarrassing, but, you know, a clear example of an appeal to authority. He tries to establish himself as some kind of authority at the beginning, and um, and certainly not just looking at pictures uh, is any kind of decent evidence at all in that particular case. I should say too that um, being ex-army I would uh, regard any general who spent his whole career looking at photographs as a stinking gutless swine. The next clip we'll show you um, is an appeal to a lack of authority and this one is uh, about um, Ian Plymer who's an Australian sceptic but he's a, uh, he's a, he just wrote a book about uh, climate change and basically as a sceptic of climate change um, and so I won't call him a climate change denier because I really kind of don't like that term at all because of it's it's too associated with um, the Holocaust deniers and there's a definitely a difference in the 
the evidence of both those. But anyway, I won't get into that. The point is, here is uh, an, an, an appeal to a lack of authority. This is from a Sky News uh, clip, and the person who comes after Ian Plymer is Ben McNeil, who's labelled climate change expert. One of Australia's leading scientists says humans are naive if they think they could be responsible for climate change. Professor Ian Plymer, a geologist from Adelaide University, says solar activity is the largest contributor to climate change. He says his research shows the radiation hitting the earth from the sun and what's actually happening underground is having more of an effect on the climate than human activity. Probably only contributes to about... 0.1% of the global temperature. So what we're doing is having an extremely minor effect on the planet. Joining us now is climate change expert Ben McNeil. Ben, uh, thanks for your time. What's your response to suggestions that humans aren't playing a hand in global warming, that solar activity has more to do with it, as we've heard there? I think you um you really have to have to look at the evidence. Um, sorry, is this me or Sharon? Uh, my name's Sharon. Okay. <laughs> nice so, to meet you, Ben. Uh, you have to look at the evidence. So the the professor Pilmer, he has to um he's a mining geologist. He's not a climate scientist, or he's not even a paleoclimatologist, which which that's people who look at climate change in the past. Now. The report that was handed out um, to the global community a couple of months ago, the, Inter- the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, is a, is a report that, is, that gathers tw- 2,500 climate scientists from around the world to, to look at the, uh, the latest scientific evidence for climate change. And what they're, what they're finding is, is four things that are irrefutable. Firstly, that obviously CO2 is a powerful greenhouse gas. So there's a really good example of an appeal to a lack of authority. So he basically says, well, he's just he's a geologist. He's not a climate scientist, not even a paleogeologist. Now they're all true, and to be fair, he does then go and say, go on to say, you've got to go back and look at the evidence, and then talks about the evidence and you know the the international uh, panel on climate change, etc. But he definitely tried to at the beginning, basically marginalise Plymer's views because he's a geologist. Um, so, you know, it's a very clear example of an appeal to a lack of authority. Yeah, the other thing to add to that is um, Ian Plymer has uh, been a sort of lifelong sceptic and is involved in the sceptical movement generally. And uh, his current position, he holds a position as professor in uh, mining geology, but he has been, prior to that, a professor in geology. Um, so the, e- e- even the even the casting of, of Professor Plymer as a professor of mining geology is, is a misre- misrepresentation because he had much broader uh, interest than that. Um, so um, it, it's really... The, the, the problem we're coming across here is any of these um, short um, uh, media-based interviews, um, presentations... Uh, the selection of experts on one side or the other of an issue, they can basically paint each other in whatever way they like and the interviewer never does research or backgrounding to find out whether somebody what it means to be, say, a climate change expert. So um, a sceptic would um, look at, look at some, this sort of presentation and ask themselves, uh, OK, wh- what kind of expertise does this person have? 
and even even if they do have a great deal of expertise, um, uh, they would the sceptic would try and follow up some of their claims and some of the references they give by reading them for themselves. Yeah, and, and just one final kind of thing, especially about climate change. But um, as I said before, you know, it would be I think it would be hypocritical for me to. I don't know enough about, say, climate change myself and the, the science behind it. I don't know enough about, you know, even quantum physics and stuff like that, although I know a little bit more about that. So my rule of thumb is I'll bow down to the scientific consensus uh, if, if it's a complex science. You pick any complex science you want. Um, but I'll still ask for that evidence and I'm, I'll reevaluate my the evidence if need be. The other thing is the, the thing where I think there is... Um, legitimate, potentially legitimate criticism of the scientific consensus in the case of, say, climate science versus, say, evolution or versus quantum physics is it's definitely a more political thing. So you do need to be a bit more sceptical, I think, when politics is involved. However, if I just say that and then don't give you evidence that there is political influence, then that's that's impugning motives. So a lot of times people do say that. They'll say, oh, but it's big government things, you know, blah, blah, blah. Government wants this view. They want this view. They want that view. Uh, well, hang on a sec. You've got to show me evidence where that occurs as well. So you can't just assert that you need evidence for that. And I, again, haven't bothered to go look for that evidence. I feel that I also should state my position on climate change, but very briefly because this program is not about climate change. I actually um, am more concerned about, say, things like peak oil. So I think um, any development of alternative energy uh, is a good thing because uh, oil resources are getting more and more scarce and so on. But what really exercises me is hypocrisy. So I will often criticise people, uh, particularly celebrities, for taking a position on climate change and exhorting the rest of us to um, revert to a, a less uh, carbon uh, profligate lifestyle. Did you hear that, Al Gore? Oh, while they themselves jet around the world in private jets. Did you they, hear that, Leonardo DiCaprio? They hold large concerts uh, that are well lit and so on, and they engage in silly, frivolous things like turning off the lights for an hour uh, to try and compensate or you know, to pretend that they're compensating for this huge extravaganza. And the, the worst hypocrite, really, that I've come across is... Uh, Richard Branson, who has made a living from encouraging encouraging people to fly, uh, taking international flights, uh, to go on holidays and so on. And uh, he's, he, he pays lip service to climate change. But if, if any one person has contributed more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, uh, I'd just like to know who I think Richard Branson might be in the top uh, echelon there. Anyone who insists that their air hostesses are young and beautiful and he's involved in the X-plane, can do whatever the hell he wants as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> he's the cool new young billionaire, not the crusty old one locked up in their cabin. Now I'm going to have to find that Simpsons clip and put that in there. <laughs> now, one thing also about an appeal to authority fallacy is just be, someone might appeal to authority, but it's also, it could be a legitimate authority, but it could also be an illegitimate authority too. So, they could have a false authority in that sense. So it's always good to actually question the authority. So you might not have heard of this person. So, well, actually, hang on a sec. Tell me about this person. Who are they? Why do you think they're an authority to speak on this particular thing? And I can think of no better example of a false authority than this one right now. Well, 
objector is he automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... There is got... some lovely filth down here. Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? (laughs) I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake... Her arm, clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? Any excuse to get Monty Python in this podcast, I'll take it. <laughs> but in in all seriousness, there there is an example of what some people have authority and they have zero uh, lot, rational reason, as far as I can see, to have that authority. Can't this is some head of the Catholic Church talks to God directly? Yeah, questionable authority. There are adherents of religion who will profess to be adherents of that religion and will defend the authority of that religion, but in their private lives won't follow the precepts that are set out by the religion. Um, and that, that's so common that uh, it's, it's a commonplace observation. Everybody knows people that are like that. Sometimes their motivations aren't impure. Uh, sometimes they uh, like to think they're examples to their children and so they will go along to church and pray and so on uh, because um, they're worried about grandma dying in the next year or so and they want to have an explanation for the children even though they themselves may be agnostic Um, but the authority of some churches is absolute and that's where if you're not an adherent of that church you have good reason to criticise that authority 
Um, and the presumption of authority. Yeah, I mean, especially um, that's. I mean, Catholics, especially these days, are very. Uh, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, very casual. A lot of Catholics, but uh, certainly there are some other other types of religions. Uh, I'm thinking of that movie. I'm about to play a bit for it. There's a particular religion there where there's some versions of it. Uh, say in the Middle Eastern religion. There's a couple of them. Yeah. Durka Durka. Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's versions of, you know, Judaism, of Islam, and of Christianity, and of, you know, probably any other bloody religion you want to find, where people are just hardcore and just accept that authority of someone because they think that that person has authority of God or speaking with God's authority. And so, you know, you can't argue against that kind of authority. Uh, but I think the easiest authority to argue against is the authority of a celebrity. I think... We possibly, this is one of the few fallacies I'm pretty certain we definitely coined. We coined WTF fallacy. We've definitely coined appeal to celebrity as well. Other people have talked about the people appealing to celebrity, but I don't think they coined it in our fashion, so spread the word, good people. Anyway, here, I almost forgot to put this in the podcast, and every now and again I do a podcast and then I listen back to it, even when I'm mixing it, I think, oh, Damn it, I forgot a really good example, and this one I would have been so angry if I'd forgotten to use this example. But luckily I didn't. Uh, here's a fantastic example and satire of the false appeal to celebrity. I don't need to go into appeal to celebrity, it's bloody obvious what we're talking about. Um, and to make it even more obvious, here is Team America. My fellow actors... We live in a dark time. The world is becoming more and more violent, and the idiots in charge are making it worse. What the world needs is an international advisory committee who truly understands global politics, namely us. The time has come for us to start using our acting talents in a different way. Yes, we can use our powers to change the world. Persuade everyone to drive hybrid cars and stop smoking. If we focus our acting on global politics, we can change everything and stuff. As actors, it is our responsibility to read the newspapers and then say what we read on television like it's our own opinion. Matt Damon. We've all done action films. If anyone tries to get in our way, we'll show them just how tough us actors really are. glad you all agree, because I've just been contacted by a very important political leader who is bringing all the world leaders together for a massive international peace conference, and he wants us to be the keynote speakers. Hey, David! Say hello to our new partner. Team America, brilliant. Uh, the the obvious point there, the best point that of satire they make, it's our responsibility to read what we've said in newspapers and then go on TV and say it like it's our own idea. <laughs> it was brilliant. And appeal to celebrity is pervasive anywhere, and we obviously we talked about that with Jenny McCarthy uh, with the autism stuff, and you know it's just the arrogance that a lot of these people have, thinking that 
you know, every single person is entitled to obviously talk about their own opinion and whatnot, and, and actors, because of their celebrity, are in a better position to talk about it than other people, but it is just a worry when their opinions are taken seriously. So, yeah, sure, they can say it, but the worry is not them saying it so much. The worry is people taking them seriously. That is the real worry. And, you know, it, they, you can take what they say seriously, but not because of who said it. And that's the main issue, is because of who said it. Although, I'm sure, Dad, you'll disagree. The the interesting irony about actors uh, taking the stage and pontificating on issues and so on is that even in the industry... Actors are recognised as, even though they're well paid, uh, particularly prominent actors or uh, actors that are draw cards, um, they're recognised in the industry as, as the least creative element of, of, for example, filmmaking. So um, in the industry, um, writers, for example, are regarded with much more respect than actors and directors are seen as far more important for the overall creative process in putting a film together or a television program. So, uh, you know, there, there are quotes I, I can remember reading from writers that say uh, actors are people who can remember what somebody else has written for them to say, and that's really the sum total of what actors are. And some actors are actually honest enough to say that about themselves. So some actors actually take the piss, excuse the expression, uh, about actors and really are quite modest about their talents and what they do. And anybody who's even rubbed shoulders in a minor way with the industry would realise just how actors are uh, known to the public but are not esteemed necessarily by the industry and the people who write their lines and so on, um, with a few notable exceptions. So, for example... Um, uh, if you look at the background information on the Seinfeld series, um, Jerry Seinfeld, the principal um, talent, if you like, on air, was so highly regarded by the writers, and, and genuinely so, because he wrote uh, and and he also edited scripts, and uh, what he had to contribute was was absolutely brilliant. Um, so the thing is that um, I I have a reflex action to any celebrity who pontificates about anything other than their own industry. And that reflex action is to um, turn the television off, for example, if they're on television. Or if I'm in somebody else's home, or I've just broken into somebody else's house uh, and turned their television on, I'll throw something at the screen. Um, And I have actually shot a television on one occasion with a 22 rifle, but I don't want anyone to know about that, so please don't spread it. And just to, to add to that, um, it's really uh, interesting that because uh, actors, you know, they are good at what they do, which is acting, but acting in the end of the day is just saying someone else's material. And when you're talking about the Seinfeld thing, watching the uh, DVD commentary of Seinfeld and hearing the, um, the, the commentary over the top, when the actors were, were talking, were actually, you know, say, um, Julia Louise Dreyfus and, um, uh, George Costanza, um, Jason Alexander, they basically just sat there watching and laughing like I was, which is fine, because it was good to watch it that way. It was like you were in the room watching and laughing it with them. But when they were the writers were commenting, they told you all the details about the plots and how they wrote it, and you see who the really clever, bright people are that do it. Now, don't get me wrong, I think all the actors on Seinfeld were 
brilliant. You know, they they did contribute a lot because it was a lot of just what they brought to it. But at the end of the day, the actual intellectually clever ones are going to be the writers, not going to be the actors generally. And the exception being Seinfeld, then in saying that he was not that great an actor, that's what made his character so funny anyway. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, and I think um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone uh, also have uh, quite a fairly explicit position on actors also. But really, the main reason we wanted to do puppets was just because we hate actors. All of them. Everybody. Every single goddamn one of them. That's why we do all the voices in South Park and we do animation is because no matter how big or small the actor, they always just have, you know, such an attitude and think that they're all rad. And, you know, it's, there's no lamer thing you can be in the world than an actor. It's the most self-serving. I'm just going off on a rant now. The whole thing about South Park was basically us making fun of celebrity, you know, when we were just little bastards sleeping on people's floors and we were all pissed off at Hollywood. It was like, we just want to do a show that ripped on celebrities and how much people love celebrities. And so it's really just another way to do that. Um, Because now we can have all the celebrities made into puppets and then we can kill them. Okay, so that was uh, Appeal to Authority, and just before we end the podcast, um, in the last Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, uh, which was um, episode, let me see if I can find it here, episode 195, uh, now I'm almost certain there is not a single person who listens to our podcast who doesn't also listen to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, so I'm just going to make that assumption. Uh, now... They had a little a question from somebody about um, the argument for about inductive reasoning, and the question was an argument they'd be having with their friends: all inferences from experience, blah 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 blah. If if you haven't, I'm going to put a link to it anyway. You can see it. it's called the induction um, in science, and it's the argument from induction. And they answered it okay on the skeptics' guide to the universe, but um, obviously. Most of them don't have a background in philosophy of science, but I do. So, and I've written actually an article about it um, in Philosophy Now a while back about the argument from induction. And the main problem they don't discuss very well in Skeptics Guide to the Universe, I didn't think, was the difference between a logical basis for for something and a, versus a rational basis for believing in something. Um, but anyway, I won't rubbish on about it much more. What I, all I want to say is, if you wanted to find out more about that, I'll put a link. For this podcast show in the show notes, I'll put a link to the article I wrote in Philosophy Now about um, inductive reasoning and uh, my solution to the argument from induction uh, for inductive reasoning. Okay, then that's it for this fortnight. We'll see you back in another fortnight with another podcast. And it's goodbye from me, Theo, and it's goodbye from me, the authority figure in the podcast game, Jeff. I don't dispute that. What he says goes. All right, people. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net.